Saludos, this is Luis Avila. If this is the first episode you listen to, welcome. Thanks for giving us a try. We are a space where we have conversations with people working on social change, from labor leaders to activists and from thinkers to doers and everything in between. These are brief but candid conversations about our work, the way we make meaning of the world and how we can find joy in the midst of the chaos we're living in. I'm a community organizer based in Phoenix, Arizona, founder of a consulting firm called Iconico, where we partner with leaders and organizations to build advocacy capacity in the US and other places in the world. I'm originally from Mexico, from where I immigrated as an adult in the early 2000s. When I left my country of birth, I thought it'd be only for a few months, or maybe even a couple of years, but migrating is usually filled with uncertainty. It's a process of displacement and finding, of figuring things out. I often compare the first years that I lived in the United States to waking up in a dark room, where you try to adjust your eyes to find light, knocking and sensing your way through until you can see more clearly. That was my experience when I arrived in the United States. From learning a new language to understanding new cultural norms and contradictions, the United States was the dark room I was walking through. Migration is part of the history of the United States, but often the analysis is shallow or simplified. We hear often that people move here to find a better life. Well, that's the story for some of us, but it's not always the case. The United States has many faces to its movement of people from the forced migration that black folks were subject through the slave trade to indigenous communities that were uprooted and pushed out to other regions of the land. Migration is not always about seeking. It can also be about escaping. An example of this is today's movement of people. Countless individuals leaving the places they call home due to drought and other climate change-related migration. According to a new study by ProPublica and the New York Times, over a billion people could be displaced from their homelands due to extreme heat in the next 50 years. The United States and other countries could be the receivers of millions of immigrants from regions most impacted from climate change. This migration has already started, and there are places in this country that have seen unprecedented jumps in new arrivals in the last decades. One of those places is New Orleans that have seen an influx of Central American immigrants that have helped rebuild the city after natural and man-made disasters. This community now comprises almost 30% of the population growth in the region. And these trends have changed school populations, cultural expressions, and at times, the ways we see each other. Iconico Exchange is an effort to discuss how changemakers approach their work. Iconico Exchange. We talk about campaigns, places of tension, and joy in our movements, and get inspired by organizers and activists all around the world. Iconico Exchange. In today's episode, we talk with Mary Moran, founder of Our Voice, Nuestra Voz, an organization based in New Orleans, Louisiana, that works with black and brown families to ensure their children receive the education they deserve. As we will do with all our guests, I wanted to know how Mary would explain what she does without using her title. And this is what she shared. I would say I'm a nation builder. Uh, I would say that my um, day-to-day job and my calling in life is really to... Um, to build, you know, and to build our people and to build our community, you know, especially in the South, we're a sort of newer community here. So yeah, it's about us sort of um, 
saying that this is our home, claiming space, claiming, you know, um, home and, and identity. And so that process of nation building uh, is my day-to-day job and also my calling. Purpose helps us navigate some of the most difficult situations in life. So having clarity on why we do the work we do can keep us centered, even when it seems all hope is gone. I wanted to hear where Mary got this energy from. When did she become politicized to the point of making this type of work her calling? One of the ways that I have processed, and maybe not even processed, but have like kind of coped with trauma is my ability to block out Uh, facts and information and whole periods of my life is uh, pretty uh, phenomenal, actually. But I do remember this very instance. And part of the trauma is really around my brother's experience with being uh, incarcerated. And he was he's a year older than me. And uh, for 15 years, I remember spending time with my parents. And every single weekend, we would go visit him when he was close by. And when he was you know, like within a three and five hour drive, we would go either every other weekend or once a month. I remember, you know, being in LA and like standing in these lines and um, there was churches and different organizations that were, you know, passing out pamphlets and organizing the folks who were in line uh, around uh, different initiatives. Specifically, there was a campaign around removing the uh, kind of solitary confinement, the shoe, uh, security housing units. This was actually how I was politicized because uh, that was the campaign. But my question was, it was an experience that our family had just had. We spent a lot of money on who, someone who we thought was a lawyer that was not a lawyer, that was a paralegal that did nothing but rob our family from uh, money that you know we had that you know my parents had worked really hard to earn. And so this process of uh, asking for a service but then being organized around solitary confinement was um, the moment that I would say as like a 15 and 16 year old, I was like, okay, this is something that I feels very useful to my life. And since then, I started working on like just being more politicized. Our lived experiences are a powerful field that can help us stay focused in getting free. And this is why as organizers, we're constantly telling and retelling our story. It's a reminder of why we do what we do, but also an opportunity to connect with others and learn about each other's struggle. The oppression of people is usually tied to the exploitation of others. And a few places in the world have been witness and participants of such oppression as the city of New Orleans has been. After all, this place we know for the gumbo and the music and the French quarters was one of the most cruel and profitable ports in the slave trade. New Orleans, the deep south, is uh, for sure um, the stronghold of white supremacy, slavery, and a place, you know, as I was talking about, um, where... The United Fruit Company was based, and so the extraction of our land, the raping uh, of our people and uh, our labor, uh, the wealth came here and um, and it was concentrated here. And so uh, to a certain degree, we've always been back and forth to South Louisiana. And in terms of kind of the indigenous experience and in terms of the the uh, native experience here, this is we're on Chichimacha land. It was a nation that was thriving and uh, has since, you know, genocide and uh, and the stealing of the land has been decimated. And uh, in terms of the Black experience 
absolutely a place where um, you actually see it when you're just even driving around or walking around the city or whether you're on a streetcar. You know, you can kind of see as the streets start to turn along the Mississippi River uh, where a new plantation started. And, you know, so it's in our architecture, it's in like, you know, the lay of uh, the actual city. Uh, and it's also in how uh, we still understand, you know, power to be passed down from generation to generation uh, through different family and family names. That's the part that, you know, we often leave out when we only talk about the gumbo and the jambalaya and the etouffee, uh, the cost of all of that. But yeah, other than that, I mean, it's a beautiful city. You know, it's um, the work that's being done around organizing and caring for um, our people is something that um, that doesn't get talked about, but really is a part of the the DNA of the city. In the last decade, part of the story of New Orleans has been the rebuilding of the city. People moving in and out of neighborhoods, seeking and escaping. In the last decade, almost 30% of the city's growth has come from the arrival of Honduran immigrants. Many of them Garifona, a black community with roots to indigenous populations of Central America that arrived in the rebuilding period post-Katrina. And just like in Oakland, California in the 80s, New Orleans finds itself celebrating, preserving, and curating a deep history of black people and culture, meeting with a new wave of immigrants displaced by violence and degradation of the land in Central America. A new community with traditions adjusting to a new place. People still walking through the experience of a new country. The future of New Orleans, just like its past, will be informed by those who have been in the region for generations, but also in how it deals with the integration of its new arrivals. Yeah, I think actually my neighborhood is one of those neighborhoods that forever and a day was a Black community. And uh, and now you're seeing a lot more Garifuna folks. You're seeing a lot more folks from Central America. I was walking the other day and I'm on the walk and I'm counting like, oh, okay, this is my third house where I'm walking and on this one block and I see another brown family, you know, uh, they were uh, blasting some brancheras um, and yeah, they were popping. They had a carne asada, you know, smelled phenomenal. <laughs> I was like, yo, let me get a taco. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just beautiful to see, right? That like, you know, over the time that I've been here, you can kind of see the waves of, of us just getting more and more comfortable. But I think that, you know, as we move on in the next uh, five and, and 10 and, and 20 years, what we'll see is just a lot more um, middle school kids who were born here. They're now voters. They'll be voters, right? And so there's a need to both uh, cultivate that voter who's saying, I'm going to vote both on my best interests, but also on this shared ticket of issues between our community and the Black community. So, uh, you know, we'll see that happening. We'll also see some elected officials that um, that are, you know, part of our community. We'll also see that, you know, you know, we're a city of, of art and, and culture, but it's hard to find us, you know, whether you're talking about a mural, whether you're talking about a row of stores, uh, it's very difficult. And so I think, you know, we'll start to, to see some of that and we'll start to grow some of that as, uh, as a community over the next couple of years. One of my favorite ideas comes from a book called Octavia's Brood. 
from Adrienne Marie Brown, Angualida y Marisha. They invited organizers and justice workers to imagine a world without many of the ailments that we created in our societies, such as colonization and racism. It's called speculative fiction. And it sometimes shows up in our world as Afrofuturism, indigenous ingenuity, and many other expressions in which oppressed people can imagine a world as audacious as science fiction. When I visit New Orleans, I always see it as a city of the future, and not a city from the past, but a place that continuously relies on the innovative resilience of its people. A region filled with clairvoyant and creative individuals, inventors of jazz, freedom fighters, nation builders. Imagining that future, Mary Moran has embarked in creating shared spaces for black and brown residents of the city, inviting them to imagine a future of coexistence, justice, and beauty. She calls it the black and brown get down. When they talk about, you know, any other movement, and uh, I think, you know, whether we're talking about love wins, Black Lives Matter, like the very, you know, saying of the black and brown get down, is something that we want to see, right? Uh, we want to see black and brown uh, people getting down and like having fun and, you know, sharing community and sharing space. And so it's a it's a movement to uh, bring solidarity, to bring community and uh, to bring wins, a collective win to our communities um, by getting to know each other, building um, power, building campaigns. Uh, and a lot of that is really done through uh, what is very innate to our community, like our culture, like our traditions. We have been, over the last couple of years, having our kind of signature event this past year, or actually this year, we had uh, over 500 folks come out to our event that was here in New Orleans. We have, you know, expanded from it being uh, something that was just an event to we have a podcast, we have a playlist that comes out every month. We're working on some uh, community plots right now for our people to come together and both think about, you know, land sovereignty and like food sovereignty and be able to create some farmers markets where our folks can grow some things, make some revenue, spread the word on, on some of what we're doing. You know, what's great about both of our communities is like we built these amazing civilizations and amazing technology of the past, which is what is really sustaining us right now. And in order to get to the next uh, hundreds and thousands of years, uh, we need to continue to uh, practicing our dons uh, so that we can um, build some new technology. Mary mentioned collective action and campaigns that they create with black and brown communities to imagine and shape the future. So what does the work look like? Let's listen to how she speaks to the current work they're leading in the region. So our, our kind of issues that we work on are education, immigration, and criminal justice. Uh, we're working on um, campaign around the reopening of schools and really creating a process for how um, schools must engage parents as uh, stakeholders and the different issues that they have from transportation to academics to equity around like how instruction is happening uh, during COVID. And that is going really well. We're also working on to support a larger citywide campaign to end money bail in the city. Uh, we're also then working with different schools and different groups of parents around, you know, really 
building the capacity of schools to engage with our people on a much deeper level outside of, you know, sort of just informing parents. And so what does it look like for us to build the capacity of schools to actually uh, engage parents and like consult with them and really co-create with them on a much deeper level than where we're at now? The power of the oppressor, be a system, an institution, or an individual, always comes from the division created amongst others. It sometimes comes in the way of false binaries that divide communities, and is often rooted in creating a sense of scarcity. If others have what I'm supposed to, then I'll never have what I deserve. This is what Maddie wanted to expand on when I asked what she'd like to cover if we had more time. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that is critical for me right now is the process of nation building, right? And how uh, sometimes I actually think that we don't talk about it enough that in every community, there's always like some random little beef between different nonprofits, between different organizations. And, you know, really has to do with how um, the nonprofit industrial complex kind of pins organizations against each other. And I think the, you know, I'm from LA. And so Nipsey talks about um, how once you get disrespected, we have to change the way that we react to it. And what I took by that is like, instead of uh, just getting on a petty train, you know, and going back and forth uh, with folks. And sometimes with generations, I see that here in New Orleans, right? It may be something an organization did in the prior uh, sort of tenure of whoever that leader was, and then it carries on from generation to generation. And I think, you know, one of the big things that we could all do is have some time to build with each other, have some time to uh, to heal and to do some kind of reframing where we understand what is actually happening and also what's at stake when uh, we don't work together both in one given city around a specific issue uh, and also, you know, nationwide around issues that we should be, you know, in more alignment and in more constant communication with different organizations. I love talking with Mari Moran. She's always scheming new ways to approach her work and is one of those humans that lightens your life with her presence. If you want to learn more about her work, visit her website at ovmv.org. That's the initials of our voice, Nuestra Voz, ovmv.org. You can also search Black and Brown Get Down on Spotify and listen to the jams they upload every month. I want to send a big shout out to Grecia Beltran for producing this show, to Francisco Flores for the beautiful mixing and production, to Monica Nawakowski and Jay Bocacuña from the Iconico team for their help in promotion, to Carla Chavarria for the graphics, Yali Avila for editing, the Fuerte Network for the distribution, and to you for getting down with us this week. In the next episode, we talk with someone who wants to talk about anti-blackness in the Latino community and what she's doing about it. Visit Iconico.io to get all the amazing campaign tools and goodies we have for you. And you can also find us on Facebook.com slash Iconico campaigns. The music is by Barrio Lindo, and this episode was written and edited by me, Luis Avila. Have a good week, and don't forget, you are powerful, more so when you are with others. When was the last time you danced with your eyes closed? Mmm, ay, que rico. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think. Um, oh, God. I would say the last time, well, you know, some of them I actually can't 
disclose because first of all, this podcast is going to be everywhere. And, um, you know, I don't want the people to know all my business. The views and opinions expressed by the guests and hosts of Iconico Exchange are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Iconico or the Fuerte Network.